This show is sponsored in part by the Mid-OhioCon, October 4th and 5th, 2008, at the Greater Columbus Convention Center in Columbus, Ohio. For more information, visit midohiocon.com. Major Spoilers theme song! Major Spoilers theme song! Major Spoilers theme song! I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and we'll go into detail about the topics we discuss, so if you haven't read, listened to, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. This time around, some news you can use, the comic reviews, the statue of Bruce, Kirk and Hans number twos, the Sturgis interviews, tag might make you say ooze, Beatles got the blues, and one listener in ten gets the joke when I say Burma shave. All this and more, because Papa needs a new pair of shoes, the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to the show, everybody. Hey, I want to start off this week by saying, you know, last week when I kept saying... Oh, man, this is a two-hour podcast, two-hour podcast. If you looked at your timestamp, it was only an hour and a half. That's because I miscalculated whenever I was uh, doing our pre-roll show. And, uh, man, cut out a whole bunch of unnecessary crap that we talked about. Everything I said. (laughs) We figured out what Matthew does whenever he's listening to the Major Spoilers podcast. Uh, Bullshit, bullshit, there's Rodrigo's rambling. Oh, there's me. This is the good stuff. All you did was actually cut out every time I said one of the things that, and it knocked like 30 minutes off. There you go. So uh, this week we've got a really great show. want to start off with some top news items. Check out the website at Majorspoilers.com. We update that uh, multiple times per day, uh, often hourly, so that we have uh, information for you to peruse and pursue and think about and ponder. A couple of big ones this week. uh, The Watchmen movie may not actually hit theaters (gasps) if 20th Century Fox has its way. Uh, There was a lawsuit back in February that that they put out saying that they still own the rights from a 1990 uh, contract that they had, spec contract, that was never fully bought out. Now they're asking a judge to stop or halt the movie from being released because it violates their copyright and what ownership they have on The Watchmen. Warner Brothers. I, I, I think we're still going to see the movie in theaters. Oh, yeah. I just think Warner Brothers is going to shell out a, a bunch of, of money. money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But on the other hand, Warner Brothers is rolling in the dough. This past weekend, even though The Dark Knight did not uh, take the number one spot at the box office, it has now brought in enough money to pass Star Wars as the number two movie of all time as far as box office gross goes. The only one it's behind is Titanic. Mm-hmm. They got about another $200 million to go before they can catch that. I don't think they're going to have that's going to happen before it hits DVD, but mm. hey, Dark Knight, number two of all time, that's not nice. too bad. Now is that adjusted gross dollars or is that just no, total it, gross? No, if that were if that were the case, then Gone with the Wind would be the number one. Still be number one. Yeah, yeah. So this is right. just and, based on on dollars today. And Manos, the Hands of Fate, would be at number three. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, three billion. Hey, there was a you know the Kevin Church over at uh, BukuKevin.com. Uh, posted an interesting article, and he wanted people to spread it around, something that one of his colleagues had experienced while at the San Diego Comic-Con. And this guy wrote this really interesting essay on the sexual harassment that he saw at the Comic-Con and the total lack of policy in place to handle such an event. And so he really wanted people to post this around and discuss it on their own websites. I thought, well, why not discuss it here? Now, some people might say, some people, not me, 
some people might say, well, them girls are just that way. They're just asking for it. See, and there, that's a really, that's a fine line to play because you have to ask yourself this. When I go to a Comic-Con, if I dress up as, you know, God forbid, the Flash or no! Darth Vader. Exactly. If I go dressed in a wholly inappropriate costume, people will be standing across the room going, hey, look at the fat guy dressed as the Flash. I have to know that that's what's happening. But that doesn't necessarily, you know, that doesn't excuse anybody from coming up and, you know, physically assaulting me or even verbally assaulting me for being a fat bastard in a, in a Flash suit. Right. And you think that, you know, especially the model actresses who get paid to be there, like uh, I, the picture that you showed was the girl in the Ghostbusters suit. Yeah, the two girls. Those were the booth babes. For right. The booth babes IWR are being paid Kana. to be there. Right. But they, should, so to, they shouldn't be subjected to, hey, baby, let me grab your butt or exactly and that's my them babies point. or something. Here's the thing, you know, though. Even, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. The, from, from the article, I got the sense that none of the people who were uh, harassed in these anecdotes were models. They were creators Well, the one that started writers. off with where um, the guy was saying, oh, yeah, they were looking at the pictures. He's like, oh, yeah, look at these Ghostbuster girls. I grabbed one of their butts just to see what would happen. Uh, that started his in, uh, whole thing off. I and see. then he followed up with another experience of um, there was a guy walking around and essentially verbally assaulting uh, female uh, artists or exhibitors, mm -hmm. you know, criticizing yeah. their work. It didn't come off that the guy was sexually suggesting anything just like oh your work sucks or really putting them down right when so, it comes to the especially just the the stereotypical comic book guy worst episode ever right you know the whole we the, what we think is that it's someone who has very little social experience with anybody but especially with girls and yes. this is not an excuse and this is not an explanation but you look at that from the perspective of even at a store the size of Gatekeeper, Gatekeeper Hobbies, Huntoon and Gage, Topeka, ask us about our Vampirella back issues. Three, three or four issues now, three or four episodes uh, now, he's gone without throwing that in there. I, I should uh, point out. I'm sorry. Anyway, so at your local place, do you have some some? Even at a place of our there? size, we have people who come in and are socially inept and that's okay up to a point but when they start being offensive or abusive or you know annoying to the other patrons the other customers you have a moment where you have to decide whether you're going to take them aside and say look this is a place this is a place where people come to have fun you are making them not have fun i need you to modify your behavior and i think especially at a place the size of comic-con you have to have Hard and fast rules about what is and isn't acceptable with booth babes, with other patrons, even with just, you know, random girls off the street. Absolutely. I think uh, there there shouldn't just be a sexual harassment policy. There should be a harassment policy exactly. for Comic-Con that is plainly printed in your, you know, multi-page program right. thing that you get, Right. Um, as I understand it, because I've never been there. <laughs> it's, it's a newspaper-sized thing, believe right. me. And, you know, it, sexual harassment should, of course, be included, but it, there should be a general harassment policy. There should be security guards and there should be a place where people know that they can go to uh, file a complaint or, mm -hmm. you know, locate their lost children. And, you know, it right. should be pretty easy because how many people uh, dress their kid like Guy Gardner, right? <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> no, so no. I, I agree with you. I do think that there needs to be a policy in place and there needs to be because the way this person wrote it really came across like people knew that it 
some of the stuff was going on, but they didn't know what to do about mm -hmm. it. Does the person get a warning? Do they get kicked out and no longer be readmitted? But even right. in that case, how do you prevent, you know, what do you do? You circulate a little flyer around that has all these people that have been booted out and says, do not allow this person back in. There's, you know, 50 different entries and exits at that place. person could slip in any Well, don't, any you, number don't of ways. you need a pass, though? You wear it around your neck, sure. I mean, well, you could, they can yeah, just you take, take away that. his pass. Yeah, sure, you could Thank do that. Yeah, that would probably curtail it. I, I think Rodrigo's point is a good point to make, though. I mean, if you have someone going around and accosting female creators just because they're females, or seemingly because they're females, general harassment, anybody touching anybody that they don't know without, you know, first coming into the situation, and, you know, you don't grab somebody's butt ever anyway. Right. Well, here's that the gets problem. You here's the problem, and this is what happens at a lot of conventions. I've been to a billion of them, from CES to NAB to San Diego to even smaller conventions. Mm -hmm. When you get, in the case of San Diego, 125,000 people packed onto that show floor, people are bustling into one another. I mean, it's like shoulder to shoulder at times, and it's very crowded. And so someone could be walking by, oh, I'm going to grab that girl's butt or that guy's butt or whatever, and making a, a casual pass like that. Oh, I'm sorry, it's just crowded in here. Mm -hmm. You know, that yeah. becomes very hard at that level. Um, certainly, certainly, the models that I've known and the uh, booth babes that, that I've met and talked to, they experience this a lot and they know how to deal with it. And yes, they do get their butts touched a lot. Yes, they do get, you know, disgusting people moving up against them all the time. And that's something that they're willing to put up with to a point. The weird part becomes, when does this person not get the hint you know you can say oh please don't do that mm -hmm. move the hand or whatever then you get to the point of what happens when this person keeps coming back again and again and again and turns into a stalker mm -hmm. you Makes know sense. and that's when it gets really weird so uh, you know what i think is is that everybody listening should go up to the major spoilers website look for this entry you can just find it by doing a search for san diego comic-con or clicking on our major spoiler san diego coverage it's the first story and you can read about these experiences and we'd really like for you to weigh in on sexual harassment policies at conventions. Uh, even relate some stories. If you're male or female and you've had these happen to you, you know, feel free to relate those stories and, and let's get the word out about a possible policy change. Or, you know, if you've written a policy for your workplace. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that. that would be a good thing, too. I have, I have people who, you know, work with me and for me at work who are female, even if it's something as simple as me going over an attendance issue. If, you know, if the two of us... Myself and a female agent are going off the floor. There will be a female team manager present so as to make sure that, you know, neither of us does anything or says anything untoward. Yep. There should be some sort of codified policy, something that, you know, even if it's just a here's the worst case scenario, here's how we get rid of the real hardcore stalkers and loonies, that they have to have something. And it's not just San Diego. I don't want to seem like we're picking on San Diego. Well, it's any it's, convention, really. Yeah, any convention, any industry, any place, you have to take into account that there are going to be people who go past that line. Yep. All right, so those are some of the top stories. Don't forget to go over to the website, Majorspoilers.com, for all sorts of news, reviews, and, of course, spoilers that you're going to find. August 31st is quickly approaching, guys, and we are going to have to give away that big Dark Knight Strikes Back 
statue, the Frank Miller-inspired Dark Knight statue that we've been holding on to for a couple of months. We're going to give it to somebody, and all you have to do is enter a contest. All you have to do is print out the Major Spoilers banner. You can find it there at the Major Spoilers website. Print it out, take it down to your local comic book shop, get your picture taken with the store manager holding that sign, uh, go and get your picture taken with a hot girl or a hot guy holding that sign. No sexual harassment, please. Yeah, don't grab their butts. And or... Go and get your picture taken with somebody famous holding that sign. Send it to us. You'll get entered in the contest. You can enter as many times as you want. We're going to put these in a drawing. We're going to draw for it. I believe it's September 3rd, whatever, September 1st, whatever show we're recording uh, the first Tuesday after August 31st. And some lucky winner is going to get that uh, statue. Now, until this week... We've only had one person enter five times. That's Julian. And Julian, I still have your contest contest prize from a couple of weeks ago that I need to mail out to you. I'm just terrible that way. But we had Hermit, who's been forever bragging on the site. Oh, yeah, I'm going to send in my entry. You're going to send in my entry. Finally sent in his entry this mm-hmm. week. Hermit now has a one in six chance of winning this <laughs> statue. Julian has a five in six chance of winning that statue. This Better is totally, odds than the rest of you. Yes, exactly. If You can't win if you don't play, right? So get those. Uh, go check out the Major Spoilers website for the complete contest rules. Get them in by August 31st. We'd really like a whole bunch of people to enter this contest and spread the word about Major Spoilers. Now, check check this out. This, I think, is really cool. Major Spoilers theme song! The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air! Pod- on, on the air! The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air! On the air! Pod- pod- podcast. I, I see everybody's heads in the room are bobbing and shaking to this song. What? I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen. If you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, 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 The Major Spoilers podcast is on the Dark Side air. approves. <laughs> yeah. I like the part where I talk. <laughs> <laughs> now, what the heck is this? Last week on the show, I I'd mentioned, you know what? I We really need a new Major Spoilers theme song. And I threw it out there that if anybody wants to go ahead and come up with a really cool intro that we like, and we decide to end up making the Major Spoilers theme song show song, that that person is going to win the Absolute Edition of the Watchmen uh, trade paperback. And we've already had like six or seven entries that have that have come in. Uh, this is one of them that was sent to us from our first MySpace uh, friend, Ugly Hooker. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that's the guy's uh, sign-in name. And I'm not laughing at the name. I'm laughing at you saying it. <laughs> Ugly Hooker. Uh, so, you know, this entry is at least, this contest is at least open until November. Now, I'm not saying that the one that we played, this is just a sample of some of the great stuff that we've been getting in. Um, but if you got some talent, we're looking for something fun, something upbeat, something interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've got until Thanksgiving to enter this contest if you want to participate in this. And we'll go through and listen to them and we'll find our favorite and, um, and that person will win that Watchmen trade. Absolute edition trade. What'd you guys and think remember, of that one? I, it has my vote because I talk a lot in it. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a little Matthew centric for my tastes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not enough, Stephen. <laughs> he cl- I clearly heard I'm Rodrigo, which is really about the only thing. Never mind. That's just me. That's just me. We lo- we're a big happy family. We're like a group of convicts or criminals in a prison. Yeah, and and we want a whole lot more of this kind of stuff. And who knows exactly. if if we get a ton of great submissions 
and I pick five or six of them, maybe five or six people will each win a, an Absolute Edition Watchmen trade. I'm mm, sure my pocketbook won't like that, but you never know, depending on what people are, are going to send in. Yeah, I, you can pay in Luther dollars. There you go. I don't think that'll buy many Watchmen trades, though. I think it's something like a babillion uh, uh, Luthor dollars for every uh, Watchmen trade. Or nine Ningies to the poo. There you go. (laughs) Hey, let's uh, talk about some issues that we reviewed this week in our review section. Or as the French say, revoir. Is that what they say? Because I can't understand anything that that they're talking about. (laughs) Moving on. Anyway, Rodrigo, what you got for us? I I read... uh... Incredible Hercules number 120, Ooh. which is the end of uh, Incredible Hercules' uh, secret invasion tie-in, sacred invasion, which is um, Hercules and a bunch of other gods and Amadeus Cho, boy genius, um, basically hopping into the overworld and trying to duke it out with the um, Skrulls deities who are taking over as the scrolls invade, their deities are then somehow allowed to invade <laughs> into sort of the, the Earth's deities area. That sounds just so incredibly bizarre. It is, and it's great. Um, and it's it's really well written. The interaction between all the gods is great. And um, Like this, what gods? Um, like the, the Greek gods, like Zeus and... Zeus and no, the only Greek guy on Romans, there is right? um, Hercules. They have... Um, oh, God, what's her name? Snowbird. Snowbird. Snowbird, who's a demigoddess right. from Alpha Flight. Right. Um, Ajax, who's one of the guys who like interacts with the Celestials. He's um, an Eternal. Oh, is he? Yeah. Um, well, do they have any underworld gods in this as well? Is there a scroll Mephisto? No, they have... Um, Wouldn't that? Well, they have Mikaboshi, who's this like uh, Japanese trickster god. Yeah. Um, who's tagging along with them, and then they have um. This guy whose job is to eat gods. Uh, what's his name? Um, Titan? Demogorge? Is that his name? Demogorge, yeah. yeah. Wow. He's, he was Rodrigo's actually Rodrigo's knowledge of Marvel characters amazes me. Um, so, I mean, this, this entire arc has been really great because they've had to basically hop from within, like, sort of uh, dimensional spheres. Like, they had to go from, like, the Greek uh, from like Mount Olympus into the dream time oh, cool. so that they could like make it out to like the land of dreams so that they could then make it out onto like the outer spheres of thought and stuff like oh, that. So they cool. could finally, so they could breach essentially into the scroll lands and uh, they fight and we get to meet the two main gods of the scrolls. Uh-huh. And there's this entire um, section in which they explain how they were created. And, um, they uh it's it, like the story is just really great essentially you know back in the day um the the changing people uh destroyed the static people essentially you know there were scrolls oh, yeah, who could yeah. shapeshift yeah, yeah, and yeah. scrolls who couldn't and they rose up and killed them wow um and they were about to kill sort of the the representation of the scrolls who couldn't change um, and they were being led by this uh, scroll demigoddess who eventually ascended to godhood, the the, the changing ones. And um, she's going to kill him, and he's like, well, you can't kill me. She's like, why not? He's like, well, because I'm you. I'm the aspect of you that doesn't change. And then, and so they fell in love, 
and united the the scroll people they ascended into godhood he became that uh, that which is always a scroll and in return she became an ever-shifting mass of horribleness which uh you know represents the changing part of the right, scrolls right. and in the end both of them duke it out against the remaining gods because like half of them die before this issue um and in the end, the the human gods win, but um, essentially Mikaboshi stays behind and ends up uh, taking over the scroll pantheon, Whoa, as it that's were. Pretty cool. So, what you what would you give this a, as a rating? I would definitely give it at least four stars. Wow. Um, the entire this entire arc, which I've kind of gone, I'm I, I sort of started up someplace close to the end, and I've been reading like the the newest issue and then going back and reading the previous issue oh, and kind yeah, of that yeah, so kind of i've kind of gotten it out of order a little confused about what's going on at any given point but it's really good the art is great um the dialogue is great the character interactions are great and um it, there's just like a total weird twist that i don't think anybody saw coming um pertaining to amadeo's chose dog so i'm just really? gonna leave you with okay. that is he dyslexic? Does that have something to do with it? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, he said he says wob wob. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, Incredible Hercules number 120 is in stores right now, uh, brand new this week. Matthew, what have you got for us? Um, I think I'm something like a week late and a dollar short, but That's okay. Right off the top of my review pile was one of the best books that came out the week that it came out, The 12 number 7. Uh-huh. Um, it happens to be also a Marvel title. Uh, J. Mike Straczynski. I'm going to say Straczynski. Straczynski. Okay. And, and then I'm never. I'm going to call him JMS for the rest of the time. Okay. And uh, art by Chris West. And this, of course, is. I don't want to be mean because I've been mean before, but this is the better of the two books, reviving a whole bunch of Golden Age superheroes for me. Mm-hmm. Um, number seven. This uh, this issue basically kicks in what I consider to be you know the the run to the finish. So. The issue begins with one of the characters in jail, one of the characters, Dynamic Man, uh, under investigation for murder, which, by the way, he didn't do, but one of the other members of the Twelve did. And the Phantom Reporter, who's kind of our point of view character, what what I call the eye guy, um, the Phantom Reporter is going out and looking into this murder and putting together all the clues and unfortunately putting together the fact that the Black Widow is probably responsible for it. We see one of the most poignant bits in this book so far, and that's really saying something because there have been some wonderful moments. Um, Captain Wonder, who is essentially kind of of the Superman school, mm-hmm. kind of even a, a lower-tier Superman school. We see back in the 40s he had a sidekick called Tim, and someone asks Tim, what was your superhero code name? And he said, it was Tim. <laughs> but after Captain Wonder was frozen 40 or 50 years ago, Tim tried to take over and become Captain Tim. <laughs> and, of course, he nearly got himself killed. And now he's a man in his 80s, and he's trying to reunite with his hero. And Captain Wonder, Captain Wonder tells him the horrible truth is he, has, he cannot duplicate the formula that made him super strong and immortal. Yeah. And Tim is just crushed. He is heartbroken. And the last we see of Tim is him putting on his Captain Tim costume and standing on the edge of a building, apparently ready to jump. Interesting. I mean, it's just, it's a horrifying but really touching story. And the character is just so, so beautifully 
simple. And I mean that in a nice way. I don't want to I don't want to flat out say that he's dumb because he's not a stupid character, but he's not really up to being much of anything and he spent the last 60 years thinking about how wonderful it was to have been a superhero sidekick when he was 6. Mm. It's really kind of, you know, what I would have been had I were been a superhero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we also see the 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 plot really warming up in that Mastermind Excello, the original. Um, by the way, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that what Amadeus Cho chose to be his code name? Is it? Yeah, I believe so. Now, oh. Neither here nor there. What Rodrigo knows about Marvel pales before the crap that I remember. <laughs> yeah, I think what I know about any given comic book company pales by your crap. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Many things pale besides my crap. Uh, Mastermind Excello Every time calls I see the Matthew's Phantom crap, Reporter. I pale too. And I love that name, by the way. Mastermind Excello. That's Mastermind so. Mastermind Excello. 1943. I yeah. think you know, the new Mastermind Excello for 43. It comes with a V8 engine and whatever the hell else it's got. <laughs> Sorry, I had to be there. Um, Mastermind Excello basically tells the Phantom Reporter that he has had a vision of someone dying, one of their group, one of the 12 dying. And so he sets him up with some more modern equipment. And at the end of the issue, we have the Phantom Reporter actually confronting the Black Widow, who has ungodly super and literally ungodly superhuman powers. And he's just a guy with a gun. So cool. we're set up for like a number of conflicts. And the th the best part of the narrative to me is the fact that everyone has a very unique voice. There's a very... There's a very 40s perspective, but there's different 40s perspectives. And you look at these characters and you see what I would expect to see, the attitudes from characters of that time. Dynamic man can't quite deal with the fact that people today have lifestyles that he doesn't approve of. And Mastermind yeah. Excello is constantly bombarded by cell phone signals that weren't around in the 40s that drive him crazy. Yeah, And all these characters are trying to come to terms with our world of 2008. And it's really well done. The art is awesome. Chris Weston has a huge range of facial expressions. And the characters are modeled after famous actors. There's one who looks like um, yeah, but I thought that's uh, what Edward you didn't like. I thought that's what you didn't like in, in your – I thought you didn't it, like Tommy Lee Jones as, as uh, it's, Norman there's Oswald, a difference. Osborne. There's a difference between modeling and stunt casting. Like the Blue Blade appears in this issue, and he has elements of – Errol Flynn, enough to make me go, hey, that guy looks kind of like Errol Flynn. Oh, okay. Whereas it's not a tracing of a picture of Tommy Lee Jones. Okay. Again, it's a fine line to draw, but this, I mean, this was probably the best read of, I think it was last, I hope it was last week when it came out. I would go four out of five stars on this easy. This book has yet to really drop the ball for me. And I'm kind of hoping that the ending, because these 12 issue series, when they're really great at the beginning, the ending is always kind of a disappointment. Uh. Even. Even Watchmen had an ending where I just kind of went, what? But uh, definitely a good issue and definitely a, an interesting series from JMS. It's a different change of pace for me from Marvel anyway. Cool. Cool. Hey, well, i tell you what. This week I didn't actually review an issue issue. but I what? did read. Now, check this out. There's this book by Gene Cannonberg Jr. It's called 500 Essential Graphic Novels, The Ultimate Guide. And this is 500 pages of... Graphic novels. Now, what uh, what Gene does is he doesn't go through and rank them from best to worst. What he does is he takes essentially a very good reading list of graphic novels and says, okay, I'm going to break these up into, I think, 
10 different categories. Adventure, nonfiction, crime and mystery, fantasy, general fiction, horror, humor, science fiction, superheroes, and war. And then he says, okay, uh, based on this, I'm then going to go through and find really great graphic novels mm -hmm. from each of these categories and, and put them in there. And I'm going to tell you whether what age appropriate they are, whether they're you know all ages, 12, 15 and up, 18. Uh, he gives a star rating. He gives a brief synopsis of what goes on in this graphic novel. And then his thoughts or reviews, about two paragraphs of reviews. And... Boy, I tell you, this might be the tome that we use for all future podcasts when it comes time to picking out trade paperbacks because mm -hmm. there's really not a stinker in the list. And, you know, you would think that if you're talking about 500 essential graphic novels that there wouldn't be any stinkers. But the one thing that I would criticize about this book is he, he's got a star rating system that essentially one star to, to five stars, very much like what we do on the website and here on the on the podcast. But none of the reviews ever drop below three stars, which you would expect if you're looking at the best graphic novels. Right, I so would say kinda, it is kind of like what's well, what's the point of the star rating? Yeah, then? exactly. I would have gotten rid of the star rating altogether and just left it the way he has it, because then the star rating becomes somewhat distracting. Because you're like, oh, well, is this one actually better than the other one based on your star rating? I mean, these are the 500 essential that I'm supposed to read. Aren't they all good? Mm -hmm. right. So. You know, in the future, we might just decide to flip through the book and whatever page it opens up to, for example, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Long Way Home, which is under the uh, uh, the horror category, that might be something we read in the future. It's twenty four ninety five. It is a hefty little, uh, little bit larger than digest size book, uh, but I think it's very well broken down. It's got some, everything in here I've at least heard of. Uh, but not everything that I've read. And I don't think people would flip through this and go, yeah, but such and such issue is, is missing. I don't think you would ever flip through this and say that one mm -hmm. of these doesn't belong on the list. Mm. So it's it's very, very good. For example, what about... Uh, Howard the Duck. No, Howard the Duck isn't in here, I don't think. Well, it might be <laughs> under humor. Let me look. He's got In the index, is very well done because he's got everything listed by all ages, by age group, by writer, by artist, uh, indexed by title. No Howard the Duck. And this, is, this is all trades, right? Yeah, these are all graphic novels or trades. So these mm. could be things that were uh, a standalone graphic novel like American Porn Chinese. Mm -hmm. Or it could be a collected series like the Buffy one that I mentioned or Watchmen is, is listed in here. You've got Birds of Prey Volume 1 of Like Minds is listed in here. You've got uh, Thor Visionaries, the Walt Sim Walter Simonson Volume 1 is listed in here. Uh, you've got two of the uh, Cerebus books listed mm -hmm. in here. So... Uh, oftentimes they're this he really shouldn't have said graphic novels he should have really said trade paperbacks yeah so because mm. to me there's a difference between a collected trade like buffy and something right. like american born chinese which was written in a graphic novel format mm -hmm. it sounds like this book is aimed more at the the casual reader or someone trying to get into it and i'm wondering if the choice of the term graphic novel wasn't to try and you know clarify it for those people who aren't like us, the guys who know the that's actually True. a trade paperback, right? Uh, and it, and it might be, yeah, it might be to get people thinking, not comic books. It might, you know, be thinking in that yeah. way. But you know, this is a very good reference uh, volume, you know, to have on your shelf. I, I recommend it. Cool, excellent. If you're a fan of the Fable Jack, or you've read Clockwork Storybook, or if you prefer your mysteries in the House of Cain or you like your Beatles blue, you know the name Matthew Sturgis. He's currently working exclusively for DC Comics. Welcome to the show, Matthew. 
Hi, how you doing? I'm doing very good, and and uh, thanks again for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to come talk to us here at uh, Major Spoilers. Absolutely, my pleasure. And I say you're so busy because we look at some of the titles that you're you're working on right now for DC. You're working on House of Mystery. You're doing Blue Beetle, Jack of Fables. Uh, what else are you doing? You've got uh, Shadow. Well, you ended Shadow Pact and Salvation Run. You're right. a busy guy. I, you know, I have suddenly become a very busy guy. Yeah, it's true. Um, I'm very happy about that. <laughs> now, one of the things that people may not know is what's the difference between working for DC on a title and working exclusively for DC? Are there some big differences back and forth between that? The the main difference is that you don't work for anybody else. <laughs> right. You uh, you are guaranteed uh, you know a certain amount of work uh, for two years. So uh, you know regardless of how badly I write things uh, <laughs> between now and two years, they have to keep letting me write it. <laughs> that's the main thing. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, and I guess that's a good thing. But I don't know of too many bad things that that I've seen you write. Even going all the way back to the uh, the late '90s, early 2000s, when you were working on Clockwork Storybook with Bill Willingham, Chris Robertson, and Mark Finn, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago uh, to talk about uh, Conan and Robert E. Howard and some other things. How did, did he, you get? Did he talk about? Did he talk about gorillas? Did he talk about gorillas? No, not very much. <laughs> I'm surprised. Usually, that's all he wants to talk about. <laughs> what? How did you get involved, or at what point did you get involved with the Clockwork Storybook folk? Were you the, kind of the last one in of the four, or were you in the middle, or how did that come about with your involvement? I think I was the last one to join. Um, it basically came together uh, at Austin Books, which is the uh, the main comic shop here in Austin, mm-hmm. uh, which is the place where I and just about everyone I know have been shopping for years. And um, Mark Finn worked at Austin Books. Ah, okay. And he knew Robertson somehow, and he also knew Willingham. And at the time, Willingham was trying to put together just a writing group uh, so that he could you know, work on his prose and interact with other writers. And I have known Chris Robertson forever, since freshman year of college. And so I had just moved back to Texas at the time, and he sort of recommended me. Oh, cool. Well, that's... Kind of a fortunate event then uh, for you because of what happens later on. As as far as the Clockwork Storybook goes, we talked about um, Mark and his his work. What what did you bring to the table? If I remember correctly, you did the um, did you do the kind of the Italian mafia stories? Were, were those yours? I did. Yeah, I was always a big Godfather nut, mm-hmm. and. Um, I always had wanted to write some kind of thing that that had a mafia sensibility. And since we were doing this sort of, you know, city of hidden magic, I figured a kind of, you know, Italian mob slash sorcerer kind of guy would be a cool thing to write. And so, yeah, I wrote a bunch of that stuff. There's no way you can access it now. It's all kind of buried in the memory hole at this point. Oh, I have a way to access it. <laughs> it's called I don't know my, if I want it uncovered. <laughs> it's all on my hard drive. In fact, I, th- I think I sent uh, you and Mark a link a couple of weeks ago to uh, to where I have those files uh, sitting. Yes, so yes. If uh, I'm afraid to read some of it. 
Well, you know, it's actually kind of holds up pretty pretty well over over time. I was going through reading some of the stuff from 98, and I can say, okay, well, here's where I can start to see some ideas forming. And then I jumped ahead uh, this afternoon to some of the later stuff, and it's like, this is where everything clicks and where everything's really good. Oh, good. What What's going on with Clockwork Storybook? I know you and, and Bill Willingham have a website together, more of a forum, actually, to talk all about mm-hmm. your shared work from uh, Fables and Jack of Fables and the other things. But you recently changed that name to clockworkstorybook.net or cswb.net. Or mm-hmm. what, what's going on with, with that? Are you guys bringing it all back together? I know uh, when we talked with Mark, he said that you guys got together a year or so ago and had a good writing session together. That's right. We've sort of resurrected the name more because it, it was just sort of the same guys. It, was, it wasn't like, let's get the band back together and go out on the road. It was more <laughs> like um, we had... Uh, it started with Willingham deciding that he wanted to rent Rudyard Kipling's house yeah. and go finish this novel that he was working on. And then he just started inviting us to come out there. And, um, you know we kind of realized as it was coming together, like, hey, this is the old Clockwork Gang. Um, and so we sort of unofficially dubbed it the Clockwork Storybook Retreat. Ah. And it was so much fun that we decided to make it an, an annual thing. Um, and so when we decided to change the website over, we just sort of decided that uh, Clockwork Storybook would be a fun name for it um, and kind of re- reinforced the notion that this is some kind of, you know, secret cabal that uh, <laughs> made plans starting in the late 90s to take over the, the world. Well, you guys are kind of doing that. I mean, uh, Mark is doing some stuff with Dark Horse with Conan. Uh, of course, uh, Bill is is all over uh, DC titles, and now you're all over DC titles. And that's why, you know, you kind of came in last to the Clockwork Storybook, but you kind of um, – were helped along or had the advantage of being friends with Bill because that helped you get into Fables and Jack of Fables. Yeah, that that definitely, uh, you know, got my foot in the door at DC, and and that made my life a, a lot easier. Um, and so it, it's kind of nice now, I think, you know, for the first couple of years of my comic book career, you know, people saw me as, you know, that other guy that works with Willingham sometimes. Right. And, uh, you know, and now, you know, I can, you know, conduct entire interviews where Willingham's name never shows up. So <laughs> oh, sorry. I think, <laughs> yeah, so thanks a lot. <laughs> but, uh, but no, 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 no. Uh, but of course, I'm, you know, always thrilled to work with Bill. So we've always worked together well. And, um, you know, the, the main reason that, that Bill asked me to, to co-write Jack of Fables with him was because we had done so much work together in Clockwork Storybook and, and mm-hmm. we knew that uh, we had a good working relationship already. Well, I just love this last arc of Jack of Fables, uh, the one that's set in the Old West. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a very interesting story that kind of looks at Jack from, you know, the villain standpoint. We've already seen him previously in the Civil War. This is after the Civil mm-hmm. War, where he's essentially a, a Jesse James-type character in his gang, and Big B tracking him down. And, and I've, I read the final bit uh, just the other day, and I was like, wow, this was actually... A really good story arc. Yeah, it really had some depth to it, and you know I can't take much credit for it because uh, uh, Bill really took the lead on this story, and it was a, a story that, that he'd been wanting to do for a long time. And so I kind of you know uh, took a back seat in the story and kind of let him do his thing. I, I my main contributions to these past three issues have been the silly little uh, babe. That's <laughs> okay. Well, 
as we talk about Jack, he's essentially an immortal. And in, in fact, mm-hmm. the arc where uh, Jack goes to Hollywood essentially clinched him as the person who will never die as an immortal. We were talking last week on the podcast about characters that are immortal who over time kind of change their view on things where, uh, for example, in Starman, you have the shade who everyone knows as somebody who's just an evil villain, but over time has kind of mellowed and come to grips with with who he is. Is that what's happening with, with Jack, do you think? Well, you know, in some way, these immortal characters end up being sort of reflections of the times that they're in, um, either by, you know, how they are forced to change to accommodate those times or how they refuse to change to accommodate those times. And, you know, a good example of that is, uh, you know, some people weren't too happy with the the Snow and Bigby wedding, the the part where Snow takes the traditional wedding vow to obey. Right. Which, to Snow White, someone who's been around for hundreds of years, uh, the amount of, of equity that she has in that relationship is a startling advance to what she would have been used to hundreds of years ago. Right. Um, so all things being relative, you know, changed quite a bit, one might imagine. Um, in terms of, of how Jack looks at the world, I, I thought that the uh, that Bill wrote at the end of this latest Jack, where Jack, is, it's sort of that ending of the third man moment, where they're down from the tower, and, um, you know, and Orson Welles is saying, look at them, they're just ants, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, how could you possibly care about them? And how, you know, has Jack really changed since then, or has he learned to be more politic about his views? You know? I it's, see. Uh, it's, it's hard to say, for sure. And that's, that's the thing that, that makes the character interesting, is that he, it's difficult to tell exactly how amoral he is. That, that I think, you know, I was thinking that same thing is, yeah, that's a, that's a good, good answer to that. I, I like that, that way of thinking about that. What... What uh, got you then into, I and mean, this is almost completely different as we shift from Jack of Fables into Shadow Pact, you mm-hmm. went from, you know, I guess one group of magical beings to another group of magical beings. Was that, a, was that a different transition? Because I guess with Fables and Jack of Fables, you're dealing with characters that you guys have known and that you've put together and that, that are easily referenced by the fairy tales. How mm-hmm. was it then moving over into Shadow Pact? Um, it was a big switched for me mainly because it was my first DCU work mm-hmm. um, and it took a lot of getting used to in terms of you know you're playing in someone else's vast sandbox and you know there are rules that you have to follow and there are things that you need to know in order to make that happen and Shadow Pact was a good sort of transitional tool for that because they sort of existed in their own little corner of the universe and they didn't really cross over you know, they didn't really, there weren't a bunch of guest stars and all that stuff. Right. So that made it, you know, a lot easier for me to, you know, sort of get my feet wet in that kind of of storytelling without, you know, getting swept up in it. Um, you know, like the kind of things that I have done, like Salvation Run and mm-hmm. and um, the, the Countdown to Mystery thing that was the big countdown tie-in, which was much more complicated in terms of how that works with, the universe as a whole. Mm-hmm. Did you guys, or did you have a lot of other stories still willing to, or still ready to be, um, I guess, were they in in the wings waiting to go when when the series ended? I guess I was, I and a lot of other of the major spoilers readers were kind of sad when, when that series was canceled. 
I was very sad to see it go. In, in fact, um, about a month before it was canceled, um, I was sitting uh, talking to Bill, and he was asking me, you know, so what have you got planned for Shadow Pact? And so I started, you know, unspooling this uh, story. This it was sort of this enchantress-centric story. And he was like, "Oh, that's cool. You know what you could do is this and this." And he started like, uh, you know, kicking ideas back at me and. Um, and it would have been a really great story. Unfortunately, I don't think you know it'll ever get told. No, that's a shame. That's... But to answer your question, yes, there was a lot that I would have loved to keep doing with the book had it been allowed to continue. Are you are you allowed to then pitch your own ideas to editors to maybe make this a limited series or a mini series, a Shadow Pack mini series? Oh, you're allowed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I mean, they have to do anything about it. Um, yeah, I, I think you know they. Uh, you know, there are sort of trends in, in characters and their popularity, and I think that, you know, these characters at this moment just, you know, maybe weren't as, didn't grab readers as much as they might have some other time, you know, so mm-hmm. bringing them back in a couple of years, perhaps, I don't know. I mean, there's no way to read the future. You know, things could change at any time. Did you get any feedback, or did you see any rumblings on the internet uh, when Shadow Pact appeared in, the, in Final Crisis number three in that big group shot? Um, I didn't even. I haven't read it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> my desk. I didn't know. Okay, there's a big group <laughs> shot, and their shadow pact is there. So, <laughs> uh, oh, good. <laughs> good for them. <laughs> do you get? A, do you get? A, I mean, you're really busy. Do you get a, a lot of time to read comics, or or what is your reading schedule like, or your free schedule like? I, um, I you know, it's funny. You you would think, you know that being a comic book writer that I would be reading a lot of comics and, and sometimes I do. Um, and there are other times like now when I'm just so, um, have been very busy and really have gotten kind of behind on some of the books. And, and generally what I'll do is, you know, when I'm working up a script that, you know, it's like a DCU script, I'll make sure to, to go and, and read what's going on to kind of keep up with the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, there are books that I love and there are books that I don't love as much. Um, and so some I read with more alacrity than others, but, um, you know, yeah, I do, I do try to stay abreast of what's going on. And then I've got my own, you know, personal favorites like Hellboy and and things like that, that I, you know, will always keep up with given the opportunity. Well, then speaking of, of keeping up with, how did, how did it work then for you when you got moved into Salvation Run, when Bill had to step down and you had to just, uh, essentially come in at 100 miles an hour and try to pick up where he left off to get everything back on track. Yeah, it was hectic. Um, it was very, very hectic. And um, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into when that when that happened um, because it, the, the way that, that things had worked out, I had to write the script for my first issue very quickly. And, um, and so the, there was a, a huge learning curve because, you know, realizing how many characters were in this thing mm-hmm. and you know, how many of them that I had never even heard of before. Some of them are fairly obscure characters. Right. Um, you know, some of them are, are, you know, guys who appeared like in one panel of Villains United or something like that and didn't really even have a character, you know, to speak of. You know, so it was definitely a challenge in that regard. But I, to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty proud with, with how it turned out. I think that in the end, it, it ended up working quite well. I, I think it did, too. I think one of the big things that really frustrated a lot of of people, though, were, was the big delay 
in the fact that mm-hmm. you know, everyone was waiting for this last issue of Salvation Run to come out to answer a lot right. of the questions that happened in Catwoman that happened in some of these other titles. Yeah, the the timing was a little unfortunate with that. And to be honest, I don't really know what happened there. So I I can't I can't say why why that it worked out the way it did. Oh, well, I mean delays happen I guess for for a variety of reasons but I just know that there were a lot of people like I wish I understood what was going on here so I could you know fill in the blanks and I think once that final issue came out there was a lot of ah okay there you right, go right 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 yeah so, yeah exactly so then salvation run you're you're diving deep into a lot of of what's going on in in DC and then you land this great gig over at Blue Beetle yeah, what a coup. I um, was really thrilled to get that job, um, and I'm still very thrilled uh, every time I write an issue. I just turned in the script for issue 32 just the other day, and, um, uh, you know, it's it's a great book that has been written very well, and so, of course, I was, you know, a little hesitant getting into it, you know, that, uh, you know, John Rogers had just finished this mm-hmm. fantastic run, mm-hmm. and... Um, and you know everyone on the internet is, is you know talking about how fantastic it is, and oh God, here's this new guy, and how's he right. going to screw it up? You know. Well, I guess the um, the good thing for you is that there was some buffer because there were a couple of other people that wrote a few issues, and then you came yeah, on yeah. with 29, so that kind of made a, a nice uh, buffer. The odd thing though is it doesn't have your name on the front cover. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I see Rogers and Albuquerque, and I'm like, wait, this is a this is a Sturgis issue. And sure enough, I flip open, and there's your name, and and no Rogers name listed. So I don't know if that yeah. threw people or if it was a, a, a fortunate yeah, accident, was, but it it read very well. No, well, thanks very much. Yeah, the the cover thing was it was you know just production error. Obviously, I, hopefully there was no malicious intent there. Um, but yeah, I um, I really enjoyed writing that issue, and I, I thought that it, that it came out pretty good. How how did you end up getting on on Blue Beetle? Was it a recommendation from you? Did you ask for it? Did the the uh, editor Rachel what's it, Gluck, Gluckstern? Did Rachel she, Gluckstern. Did she, she uh, recommend she you or? Me. Um, she called me. I had um, you know when I, I was finishing up you know a couple of different things, Shadow Pact and Salvation Run, uh, at about the same time, and and I was trying to figure out you know what I could do next. And so I had made a list of characters that I wanted to work with, mm-hmm. and uh, and the Blue Beetle was one of those characters. And so I think when when they were, I have no idea if that had anything to do with it. But at one point, I got a call from from Rachel Luxter and said, "Hey, you know, we're looking for someone to do Blue Beetle. Would you be interested?" And so I, you know, pitched a story, um, and I think you know I kind of was like jumping up and down and you know clicking my heels together. And I, I think you know maybe my enthusiasm for the project might have helped swing it my way. Okay, have you worked with her before as an editor, or do you get a lot of different editors throughout your various projects? Uh, no, this is the first time I've, I've worked with Rachel. I've worked uh, I've worked with a couple of different editors uh, over in the DCU, mm-hmm. and um, you know they're they're all pretty great. So <laughs> I'm perfectly content. Okay, you you had mentioned that you know you're following in the footsteps of, of John Rogers, who did an incredible run. I, I'm I'm tagging this the the Whedon-esque. Uh, type storytelling where subtle characters and incidents are introduced along the way, but it's not until mm-hmm. the very, very end where, holy cow, all of a sudden everything comes together, and you're glad you didn't miss a single issue. Are these some things that you're going to try to continue 
in in your run, or do you have a different kind of direction or idea that you want to want to do some things with Blue Beetle? Well, you know, obviously, I don't want to just do what what John Rogers did, right? Um, so the the shape of, of things to come won't be a, a won't be the same shape. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't want to change the feel of the book. The, the feel and tone of the book are such a big part of what what makes it so great. And so, you know, keeping the characters with their same voices, and um, you know, keeping that that crucial mix of comedy and drama, which uh, which John did so well, um, those are, are key. You know, to to keeping the book as good as it is. Um, but as far as you know, how the shape of the overall story goes, um, I think that you know it's going to be something different. And you know, I don't want to give too much away, but sure, I have, definitely have my own take on how that's going to work. Well, I mean, it, it kind of looks like that's kind of what's happening. I mean, we've got this big bad down in Mexico and a, a potential. Um, who everyone thinks is a good girl is really not a good girl. Mari, who was introduced in this in this uh, issue twenty nine, so it looks yeah. like it's you know you're shaping up a a really good story to be told, and you're actually following along with events that have happened in the other issues very nicely. I mean, there's you know the 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 love relationship that's going on in there, you know, mm-hmm. it works great. It's like oh okay, it's like another season's worth of television of Blue Beetle television. Did yeah, you? exactly, and that's exactly how I, I kind of wanted to approach it. You know, like the the whole thing with the Reach was resolved, but mm-hmm. you know that's not the end of the story. It's just you know we take we take the things that remain unresolved and we add new threats and and new stories, and we just keep going. Do you have did you have any contact with with uh, Rogers about Blue Beetle before you started writing, or? Um, I, you know, I wish I could have had more, and um, you know, I think that he's, you know, he's a very busy guy, um, you know, who's got a lot going on, uh, you know, in Hollywood, and so I did not, you know, get as much time to talk with him as I, as I would have liked. Um, although, you know, I had several very long conversations with uh, with Rachel before we started doing the book, um, and she really, she knows that book inside out, backwards and forwards. And um, so she was really the, the the primary sort of like taking me by the hand and, and showing me, you know, where everything was and, you know, where the, the bathroom was, you know, when right. I started the job. Right. Yeah. Are, are there any – are there going to be any really big surprises in the next couple of issues? You said you just turned in issue 32. Are mm-hmm. we going to expect anything shocking? Let's see. Is there anything shocking? Any there big... is some re- – there's some uh, there's some pretty shocking stuff coming up, but I don't want to say I don't say when. Some some exciting things, some uh, a character or two that I think probably people will be very excited to see. Oh, okay. Um, there's some interesting choices that get made. Um, yeah, I don't want to say too much about it. Okay, that's that's fine. I mean, a lot of people really like this title, and it seems to be one that you know really succeeds in spite of numbers that are maybe not as high as, you know, some of the other titles at the DC DC mm-hmm. line. So that's going to make you feel good that there's a huge fan base behind you in this book. It is, you know, it's it's a fan favorite book and and you know, despite the fact that it it doesn't sell very well, it does have, you know, uh, kind of a cult following and that's and that's really cool and you know, of course it's a, it's a double-edged sword because if, you know, coming on as the new writer, you are not the fan favorite then 
it could really work against you. Listeners, but, uh, go out got, and get Blue Beetle. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, please do. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I got a lot of really good feedback on on issue twenty nine. So I think that we're we're definitely headed in the right direction. Now, I'm not a big um, mystery horror fan. So I don't know a whole lot about what's going on with the original House of Mystery, but it's the it's your new reinterpretation of that of that series. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what's going on with House of Mystery? Sure. Um, the the basic you know thought process behind the book was that when we thought, wouldn't it be fun to do you know the House of Mystery, and what would that look like you know uh, forty years later? You know the um, the, the horror suspense anthologies of the 60s were, you know, very much a product of their time, and you can't really do a successful anthology book the way that that kind of book was done in those days. They just tend not to sell well. So we were trying to think, like, what could we do to make it a book that had an ongoing continuity, but at the same time kind of have the flavor of the anthology? And so what we hit on was a book that had a... Um, you know, an ongoing framing story that was quite large, mm-hmm. um, and then nested within each issue, we would find a way to put in one framed story. So each issue has a story that is written either by me or by Bill Willingham and mm-hmm. illustrated by a different artist each month. I see. Um, and, and so that way we get, you know, sort of that little touch of anthology flavor, but the main book has a story that. Uh, you know, has a large arc with stories that go on inside of it. And so you get that sense of an ongoing story that you can come back to and read every month and, and find out more about um, and explore the world of the book um, at the same time. Well, that's cool. And that you had, how many issues are out now? Two are out? Is the second issue out or has it only been the first uh, issue? Four. Four is out. Four issues? Oh, man. I am behind. I think I have issues one and two. I haven't uh, read the other. I know I do. Goodness gracious. So you've got House of Mystery. You've got Blue Beetle. You've got Jack of Fables. And then you also do some work on the regular Fables titles here and there, right? Uh, Well, we're going to be doing the – there's a big crossover Big crossover, yeah. The event that we promised we'd never do uh, (laughs) is coming up next year uh, because we we came up with the story, you know – People have asked me before, is there going to be some kind of crossover thing? And I was like, nah, because I don't, can't see how we could come up with a good story for that. But uh, we kind of, you know, put the, the horse before the cart and came up with, you know, a fun story and then thought, hey, you know, this would could be kind of that crossover idea. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? And, yeah. um, and that's sort of how it came about. So we will have, for three months there, we'll have stories in Jack of Fables story in Fables, and also a three-issue miniseries that contains the actual crossover thing itself, which is called The Literals. Wow. That's going to be exciting, though, right? I mean, have it's you... It's going to be a to-do. Do you yeah. already have everything done on this, or is this something that you're still working on, or...? This is something, uh, all, you know, all of the, the ideas are in place. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't started writing it yet. Okay. But it's going to be nuts, man. <laughs> the, the, the way we've got it all planned out. And it was kind of neat, too, because as we, we were sitting down talking about this at our uh, annual Fables dinner at the San Diego Comic Con. And as we were talking, um, you know, Todd Klein, who is the letterer on both Fables and Jack of Fables, started kicking in ideas. And we were like, hey, that's pretty cool. And then Steve Lealoha, who's the inker on Fables, kicked out some ideas, and we were like, that's cool, too. Oh, so it was cool. really kind of this group effort in terms of coming up with the, with 
the story. So it's like, and everyone who's working on the book has had kind of some input onto what the story was going to be like. So I think it's going to be, uh, you know, it's something that, that we all have, kind of have a lot of buy-in on and are excited about. Well, I'm already excited about it just hearing crossover and, you know, dealing with some of these characters that we've seen in, in both titles coming together and probably butting heads. It sounds really yeah. exciting. But you are yeah. you're a writing fool. That's what you I know. am a writing fool. What is how do you do it all? What is a typical Matthew Sturgis day? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know if I have it. You know, I think you know, like a, like I think there are different kinds of writers. There are the writers that you know sit down for four hours a day or however much and and bang out X number of words or X number of pages. And I'm not like that. You know, I um, I tend to run really hot and cold, and I will. Uh, you know, spend a couple of days kind of just noodling around in my brain. Um, and then I'll spend, you know, three days where I write for 10, 12 hours a day and hash things out. And um, I just have kind of a chaotic mind. Um, but, you know, pretty much all I do is, is read and, and write and think about comics and stuff. So it, aside from, you know, spending time with my wife and kids, it's really all I do. So, okay. so it, it's not as hard as it sounds. Well, yeah, but I, I guess I, when, you, when you think about it, to me, I write a lot of things too, both with the Major Spoilers website and some other writing things outside of the comic in- industry. And mm-hmm. I'm just finishing up some book chapters, and as I'm making the transition from working comic books into the book chapters, it's uh-huh. a it's a big adjustment for me where I actually have to take some time and go, okay, I've got to switch my mind into this mode. Do you have that same problem going from House of Mystery, which is suspense horror, to superhero Blue Beetle, to, you know, historical literature fable titles? Is that a, a huge thing to wrap your head around each time you make that switch? Or do you sit down and say, okay, this week I'm working on Blue Beetle, next week I'm working on Fables, next week, or Jack of Fables, next week I'm working on House of Mystery. Um, yeah, you know, the, it is, it can be difficult to switch, and I think that, you know, what, what helps me is that I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fickle with my attentions, and so when I'm working on something, it's, you know, I'm super interested in that thing, and that's my favorite thing, and I'm not interested in really thinking about anything else and then you know i'll finish this or that and i'm like oh, i'll that what else do i got you know and i'll go <laughs> yeah. over to house of mystery and i'm like oh this is cool this is my favorite thing ever you know what where has this been all my life and then i'll kind of do that and so I, I it kind of is good for me to be able to to switch out um you know very different kinds of, of stories because i you know i like to do a lot of different kinds of things Right. On on average, I mean, every writer is a little different, but on average, how long does it take you to work up the script for a, an individual issue? Um, to really do it well, um, I take about a week um, where I spend about, you know, two days kind of noodling and reading and researching. Um, and then I spend a day sort of like outlining how the issue is going to go. And then I spend two days actually hammering out the dialogue. I've done it in much less time than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't recommend it, um, and I won't say which issue I did this on, but okay. I, I did write one issue in nine hours once. Wow. Start to finish. Wow. Uh, do not recommend, and it definitely wasn't the best one I've ever written. Well, what what kind of research, let's say, for Blue Beetle, what kind of research do you have to do as a writer to to tell a tale? Um, you know, since, you know, what I was saying with Blue Beetle, that, like, the voice and the tone is very important, 
Um, and so what I'll do often is I'll go back and I'll reread a good stretch, uh, a couple of issues, just to make sure I've got the, the voice of the characters and, and where they're coming from and the things that they want and what they love and what they hate. And just being, you know, to be really conscious about those things before I start writing my story and, and think, okay, am I being true to this character and, and who they are? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a part of it. And then, you know, with any superhero story, um, you always want to be cognizant of, you know, is what I'm saying consistent with what's happened in the past? You know, like if, if Dr. Polaris shows up, you know, where else has he been recently? What has he done? Um, you know, who does he know? Who doesn't he know? All that kind of stuff that, you know, you, you just want to double check. So, so what issue does Dr. Polaris show up in? I won't say. Okay. I can't say. Do you have then a, do you have a contact person then that you can go to for some of this research material or do they just say hey it's in the issue somewhere go for it and find it yourself? You know, um Rachel is pretty good about that kind of stuff about about knowing um some editors, you know, are more like have like all the facts and figures at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um there's also, you know, Ian Sadler who's the the continuity coordinator. Uh, or whatever, I don't know if that's his real title, but it's something like that with continuity. And mm-hmm. so he's a good sort of like, if I, if I can't find the answer. And I'm also really lucky in that I have a lot of friends who have, you know, encyclopedic knowledges of this kind of thing. And oh, so, yeah. You know, and so if I call up, you know, I can call up my friend Paul Benjamin and say, hey, you know, when's the last time Beast Boy appeared? And, you know, what's his right. favorite pizza topping? And he'll be like, oh, well, he appeared in such and such, and it's, you know, green peppers. <laughs> it's, it's, that's why we have Matthew Peterson on our show, because he is our, <laughs> he's our walking encyclopedia of all things comics. So that, that, right. that is really good information to have. Uh, I guess, does that, I, I, I guess having all of these support people around you, does that make it then easier to write something like Blue Beetle as opposed to maybe uh, how, di- I guess, how different would that be for Jack of Fables where you actually have to go in and maybe do some research on uh, Babe the Blue Ox or some of these American fables that we've been seeing show up in the last several issues? Right. Well, I, you know, obviously it's a very different thing. And, and you know, writing, you know, because of its nature, a, you know, superhero comic is a, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a community effort. You know, you're working with a lot of different people to bring this sort of universe to life. Right. At least that's the way I look at it. Doing a book like uh, like Jack of Fables, where really it's, you know, this is all coming from me and Bill. Mm-hmm. So, um, and of course, you know, from Mark Buckingham and Tony Akins, you know, the artists that, that make it all look so good. Um, but all those ideas are, you know, it's just us. And so, um, yeah, obviously, we talk a lot. And then when I'm, you know, like when we started coming up with the stuff to do for maybe the Blue Ox, you know, you can go and do research. And that's much more personal, you know, and you can kind of track that stuff down by yourself and spend time with it and kind of weigh it back and forth. And, you know, what do I want to keep? What do I want to dispose of? And, uh, you know, and there's no continuity police for Jack of Fables. You mm-hmm. know? There's no one who's going to smack you down if you haven't, you know, done it, you know, everything exactly right. I mean, for the first uh, I don't know how many issues of Jack of Fables. We thought that Babe the Blue Ox was a girl. Yeah, she's not. Babe <laughs> is a boy, <laughs> and so we had to rectify that with kind of a, a, a disgusting little scene between Hillary Page and, and Paul Bunyan when mm-hmm. we worked that out. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned a moment ago that you you have kids. How how well? I mean, are they what what are their age ranges? I guess. 
Uh, I have two little girls who are seven and four. Have, um, have they gotten they, into into what's daddy working on? What does daddy do all day? Well, they have known for some time that, you know, the books that daddy writes are for grown-ups and they're, mm-hmm. they're not allowed to read them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because, I see. Because, you know, clearly Jack of Fable, Tots of Mystery, those kinds of things. Right. And I, I, they're probably not ready for, you know, something like Shadow Pact or Salvation Run either, which were fairly, you know, adult, definitely, you know, at least PG-13. Um, and, you know, one of the, the nice things about writing Blue Beetle is that it is, you know, it's definitely a PG kind of a book. Right. So that's, uh, you know, I let my seven-year-old read it, you know, and she thought it was pretty cool. And she's read Tiny Titans, so, you know, she knows who some of these characters are, and mm-hmm. you know, she's got a sense of, of what this world is. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Do you, but because of having children, do you take that into account when you're writing? Do you think, oh, is this really age-appropriate for this title, or is this really something that I would let my kids read when they get older? It depends on what I'm working on. If it's something like Blue Beetle, then yes, I'm very careful. I'm extremely careful uh, about you know what I put in and, and who is this for? Who's mm-hmm. going to be reading this? Mm-hmm. Um, for for a more you know mature audiences book like House of Mystery, you can't let that affect your thinking. You know, you just gotta plow into it and and hope for the best. You kind of you kind of walk the line between both DCU and Vertigo. Is there an area that you like working in more than the other? No, you know, they're completely different things, you know. Um, you know, it's like, what's better, pizza or enchiladas? You know, they're two, so well, different. they're so great together. Pizza enchilada. <laughs> enchilada pizza. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, to me, it's like, I don't really have a personal favorite. It's like, which one of your kids is your favorite? I mean, they're both really cool in, in different ways. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what what else are you are you working on? I mean, uh, as much as I love Clockwork Storybook, and and you guys are getting mm-hmm. together each and every year, I would love to see more stuff come out from San Cibola. It was like my favorite thing in in that period when I was moving from Atlanta to California. That's the thing mm-hmm. that helped me along those dark, lonely nights. Uh, <laughs> was was the adventures of everyone in, in this m- mystical Northern California city. Well, that's nice to hear. You know, San Cibola, you know, obviously has a special place in the hearts of uh, everyone who ever worked on it. And, um, you know, if the opportunity ever came up, you know, I, I, it's funny. I, To me, a lot of that stuff is kind of, you know, in the past. Right. And not something I feel like revisiting. Although, um, a book that I wrote during the time of Clockwork Storybook mm-hmm. uh, has been extensively rewritten and is now being published by Pyre Books next year. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the book called Midwinter, yeah. which is only extremely tangentially related to a San Cibola world. You would have to have done a close reading to see what the relationship is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so there is some of that, you know, clockwork tradition still alive and well. I would, I would, you guys need I, – I told uh, Mark this. I'll tell you this. I'll tell Chris this when we get him on the show and Bill when we get him on the show. You guys need to bring that back and seriously either pitch it as a television show or pitch it as an ongoing series for DC or somebody who would pick it up. Well, it, you know, it, it definitely you know, is a very cool thing. And, you know, I, I don't know if it would ever that, – if that would ever happen again. But, you know, I wouldn't be too, too surprised if you – saw something that, you know, the four of us were involved in 
at some point in the future. That's all I'll say. Excellent. And and, and uh, Mark also hinted at that as well and said, "Oh, you're going to have to you're going to have to ask Matt and see if he'll reveal any more details." <laughs> I guess one of the things that I learned from reading your, and I guess it wasn't weekly for every one of you, but with Clockwork Storybook, you had to churn out something every month. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that came out from that for me was that you have to always write. You, if you're going to improve your craft, one of the things you have to do is write every day. Do you have any tips for people that want to get into script writing or writing for comics or or just writing their own uh, prose work? Yeah, and, and you've already said it. It's that you actually have to write. You know, whenever I have this conversation with somebody, you know, they'll say, you know, I really want to write. And I say, okay, then go write. And they're like, but, well, see, I'm trying to work out my story and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, go write. Mm-hmm. Because what I think is, is hard to hear for the beginning writer is that writing is a skill just like anything else. And you actually have to do it in order to become good at it. And just like... You know, a if you were learning how to play the guitar, you wouldn't expect to sit down and record your first CD before you learn to play a note. Mm-hmm. I think that there's this kind of misconception about writing that because we all actually know how to type, that we know how to be a writer instinctively, and it's just not true. It's, you know, like any craft, you have to learn it and hone it, and it takes time. Now, it took me years to... Uh, to get to the point where I was even comfortable sharing anything that I'd written with the outside world. And even after I had done that, you know, looking back on a lot of that stuff, I still cringe, you know, and think, well, God, you know, I could have done this better, I could have done that differently. And that's part of it, you know, your growing process as a, you know, as an artist. Well, so, do you ever look back and go, wow, this was really good? You know, for, you had forgotten that you'd actually uh, wrote something really good? Do you ever get to that point? You know, sometimes do I you... do. When I was when I was going back to reread Midwinter, and my memory of the book was that it was okay, and it was like my first novel, and that it was okay but not great. You know, mm-hmm. and then I, I when I had the opportunity to have it published, um, you know, the the editor accepted the book, and I thought, well, God, why did they do that? And so I went back and and reread it, and I was like, hey, you know, this isn't half bad. So it's kind of a nice feeling because it had been so long since I'd read it that there were parts of it that I hadn't even remembered writing. Yeah. And um, so it was like being able to see that with completely fresh eyes and, and to enjoy it. Yeah, it definitely felt good. What is Midwinter? Just can you give us a short synopsis of, of what Midwinter is about? Midwinter is kind of like the Dirty Dozen in Fairyland. It's the uh, story of a group of prisoners in the you know the worst prison in all of the Sealy Kingdom, who are given a chance at parole by taking on a task that's given to them by Queen Titania, mm. and they it's a complex and difficult and very dangerous task, and if they fail, they'll be executed, and if they succeed, they'll be paroled, and so it's the story of these people trying to cross an entire country during a very short period of time, while at the same time there is a war brewing. Ah. And ultimately, they've got to decide if they're going to finish their mission or if they're going to fight this war. And that's basically what it boils down to. Cool. So this is certainly in the sci-fi fantasy realm. Definitely. Who who is going to publish this? This is coming out from Pyre Books in 
2009. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll be able to find this at Barnes & Noble and Borders and all those other places? I should think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Well, I'll have to keep a, an eye out for that. The The more you talk about it, the more it, it kind of rings a bell. I may have to go into my stacks because I, I may have actually purchased it at one time uh, back when uh, it was originally released and, and uh, read it yes. then. And this is a, uh, a revised, expanded uh, uh, version of the book uh, that I spent uh, a couple of months rewriting expanding, adding some stuff that I'd always wanted to, fixing some things that I'd always were different. So it's uh, it's a different book and a better book now than it was when it first came out. Excellent. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here at Major Spoilers. And everyone, you can read Matthew's uh, work in House of Mystery, Blue Beetle, Jack of Fables, and Fables over at DC Comics. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much. Matthew mentioned that Blue Beetle... Um, is one that might get on the chopping block if people aren't reading it. I say get out there and get yourself copies of Blue Beetle. It's yeah. a great series, and even with Sturgis on board now, his first issue looks really good. He had mentioned Dr. Polaris is going to appear in a future uh, issue. That would be issue number 32 if you've been paying attention to your solicitation information from uh, DC Comics. So it's all good. Go out there, support all the titles, Jack of Fables, Fables, Blue Beetle, too bad Shadow Pack got canceled, you know, but otherwise, mm. get out there and support that. You've been reading Blue Beetle, right, Matthew? I have. I've been very much enjoying it. I actually uh, argued this weekend whether I should throw it on the review pile or not, and I don't remember what I what my decision was, so tune in for reviews this week and see. There you Ooh. go. You ever Ooh. read Blue Beetle? No. Hey, you, you might like it. It might be right up your alley. Does it Does it have any tie-ins within, with the current crisis? No. Fortunately, it does not. I'm there. It's actually a book that is somewhat standalone, but there are references to all the other superheroes, you know, mm-hmm. especially in this last big arc uh, that was uh, that Rogers finished up. Some great powerhouse classic characters come in. This Blue Beetle, Jaime Reyes, does appear in um, Teen Titans, mm-hmm. yeah. and at least one other book he'll, he'll make an appearance in on a regular basis. Um, but you know, it's, it's a great series. Cool. And I believe either issue 24 or issue 25 was written almost entirely in Spanish. Yeah. I was going to say it's 29. I love that episode. Yeah. It's really good. Fortunately for me, since I don't speak Spanish, they did have the entire English script in the back. So see, I knew, I knew enough to get arrested, but I was still sitting there and going, what's he doing with the bear's pockets? And I have to go. So, so check it out, and thank you again, Matthew, for um, for being a part of the Major Spoilers podcast. We've got two Clockwork Storybook guys down, two more to go, <laughs> and uh, I'm currently emailing Bill Willingham to get him on the show as well. So, two out of four is nearly forty percent. So, <laughs> and on that note, bearing in mind Kansas education, ladies and gentlemen, woo! I'm a liberal arts major. Please speak slowly. Um, speaking of speaking slowly, although I never seem to do it, it's time for our major spoilers poll of the week. Poll of the week. Poll of the week. This time around, the, uh, uh, this we also need actually, some. We also need some stingers for each of our segments of our shows for the people out there really doing some music stuff. So, if you if you want to just put something week. in there, all of the week. <laughs> Uh, double points for using my voice. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not really this much of a narcissist, but what the heck. This week's poll of the week, inspired by last week's poll of the week, thanks to a, a wonderful suggestion by, I think, someone who's a really the linchpin to major spoilers operations. Um, that, 
Um, maybe we can just yeah. move it along. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Moving on. <laughs> Round eight. Fight. In this corner, hailing from the planet Vulcan, maybe it's a racial slur, but he really did have green blood. His father's name is Sarek, and his mother's name is something else. But his name is Spock, and he doesn't write baby books. His opponent, <laughs> standing 9.17 feet tall, wearing a Persian rug of some sort, hailing from the planet Kashyyyk. However one pronounced it has like nine Ys in it. He is chewing tobacco. No, Chewbacca. Yay. Let's get ready to rumble. Rodrigo, I, start us off this week. Spock oh. versus Chewbacca. Who wins in this SmackDown? Uh, it was it was a it was a hard choice for me. Way harder than uh, Kirk versus really Han. Yeah, why? Because there, I think these guys are both awesome. I've never been a huge fan of Kirk, but I always could get behind Spock because mm-hmm. he's like, hey, <laughs> and apparently so could Kirk <laughs> if you read the slash fiction. Um, oh, you were reading my yeah, mind on I that one. Sorry. <laughs> um, anyway. <Subtext. laughs> anyway. Um, you know, they're both of these guys are good foils for the the heroes that right. they're hanging oh, yeah. out with. You know, both of them are both of the heroes are impulsive and kind of follow their their immediate uh, emotions. And these two guys, you know, Chewbacca is kind of an angry Wookiee, but they're both a lot calmer than the guys that they're uh, that they're that the guys that they're backing up. I had to go with Chewbacca. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, he chooses to follow Han-, Han Solo, and I mean, to a certain degree, it is you know part of his culture that you right. know, he was rescued and all that stuff. Right. Um, but they're good friends. Uh, whereas uh, Spock, you know, he still has kind of a commander um, subordinate relationship with Kirk, even though they are friends. And also, Chewbacca, you know, basically looks like a giant corgi. Yeah, yeah. which is cute. Matthew. I think you have to take into account the differences between Han Solo, the pirate, and Kirk, the military commander. But to me, it breaks down to a couple of things. Spock is very logical and very, you know, I think you should do this. Whereas Chewbacca seems to be more of a, hey, yeah, hit him on the head kind of guy. Right. I went went with Spock for two reasons. One, even though Chewbacca has, you know, superior strength, Vulcans have always been stated to have, you know, above human strength. So I'm thinking that Spock could hold his own until he gets a neck pinch, presuming Chewbacca has a neck. (laughs) And secondly, it's the question of the bow caster and that thing around his chest. I don't know what that is, but I do know what a phaser does. So I'm thinking worst case scenario, Spock could just shoot him. Well, there you go. I guess if you're doing weapons versus weapons, certainly the phaser, maybe that should be another poll, phaser versus something else. But I I, I certainly... think that yes a phaser set to kill would probably uh wipe anyone out but in this if it were hand-to-hand combat for me chewbacca is going to win for one reason only he's got those six foot arms there's no Mm. way that spock would be able to get in there to try to do a nerve pinch if chewbacca just you know put his hands on his on spock's head like the high school (laughs) bully does and spock's just sitting there swinging his arms And then, of course, you know, Chewbacca never likes to lose, so he'd probably rip Spock's arm off in the end. So my vote is for Chewbacca. 
If you'd like to put in your two cents, you can always head over to themajorspoilers.com. Take the poll for yourself. Talk it out in the forums. Argue with Steve as to why he's wrong. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> hey, two to one, baby. Two I, to one. I, I'm I used suppose to if, it was, if it was a battle of wits, I think Chewbacca would end up winning in the end. Because really? if they played a game to see who was smarter, he'd just end up ripping Spock's arms off anyway. There you go. <laughs> So basically, the, the again, the high school bully game of chess. Yeah, there you go. Check, checkmate. Punch Bam. in the face. I think I got a good one for next week. We'll just have to see. And How it about may be Dr. Just a... McCoy versus C-3PO? No, I was going to say Dr. McCoy versus Zoidberg. How about Dr. McCoy versus Dr. McCoy? <laughs> Damn it, Jim! I'm a doctor, not a. Oh God! Somebody, I am a somebody had suggested uh, Ohura versus Princess Leia. Um, early voting in the polls: 157 votes in. Chewbacca does lead by a small margin, 54 percent to whatever that is minus 100. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with almost half. There you go. Uh, but it's interesting, though. The one thing that I've noticed about all these polls is once it reaches 100 percent or 100 votes. It seems to be whatever it is at 100 votes, that's the way the, the vote ends up. Hmm. So. so what you're saying is that 100% is actually all the votes that we see. No, no. I'm saying once it reaches 100 votes, ah. it doesn't tend to change very much from who the winner currently is at 100 votes. So that's in this case, Chewbacca is probably going to be the winner. Right. I could be wrong. Now, I'm going to have to go in now and really load the voting. No, you can't do that. (laughs) Hey, let's get to our trade paperbacks. I know you guys have been waiting for this. Coming all the way from Baboom Studios. Baboom Studios. It's everybody's favorite writer, Keith Giffen, and artists Andy Kuhn and Cody Chamberlain with their semi-zombie horror story tag. Volume 1 trade paperback from Baboom Studios. Baboom. Now check this story out. You've probably all seen the movie The Ring, right? You watch the videotape. You have to pass it on within, what, 24 hours or something, or you die. you got to get somebody else to watch it, or you die. That's kind of how this, this book is all that about. That hot. What's that? Naomi Watts. <laughs> That's all I got from The Ring. So the story starts off with a guy and a girl uh, essentially breaking up. and Well, they do break up. But as they're yep. going to the cab, this flesh-eating monster thing... Zombie comes out of the uh, out of the shadows, pushes the guy to the ground, and says, "Tag, you're it." And instantly, he turns back to normal and goes running off. And suddenly, the 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 main character—I forget his name. Do you remember his name? I don't remember. Uh, but he start he ends up dead. He's like he's got no breath. He's got no heartbeat, no pulse. Uh, he starts to rigor mortis. And as the trade continues, he starts to decompose more and more and more, but he's still a living, shuffling character. Mm-hmm. And doing some searching on the web, he finds out that he has to find somebody else to pass this curse on to in order to return to normal. And, you know, kind of as they do some investigation, him and his ex-girlfriend, or he and his ex-girlfriend, uh, they find out that the only person you can pass this curse on to is someone who really deserves it, someone who's hurt you in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, to me, it's kind of really bizarre. And he does track down this person that he uh, that has hurt him. It was a bully, a guy that almost made him drown in, in uh, camp, a guy that shoved him in the locker when he was in school, and just a guy who really deserves it. Mm-hmm. And so he goes off to try to pass the curse on to him. And I thought, you know, just that idea of 
you could be just walking down the street and some zombie comes out and touches you and instantly the curse gets passed onto you. It's a pretty freaky yeah. premise. Yeah. It's like I always say, there's a, such a fine line between high concept and dumb idea. And if you just say, hey, guy walks up, slaps you on the arm, and you're a zombie now, it sounds like it might fall towards dumb idea, but the execution of this is really well done. Yeah. I, it, it was kind of creepy. I'm not a big fan for gory graphic zombies. And there's certainly a lot of gory graphic stuff in this in this issue. Oh, yeah, there's there's this great scene where like the character, the main character, is just in absolute pain because his body has begun. He's it's totally bloated and he's begun right. to decompose. So he has to basically cut into his own flesh and release the pressure so that he can start moving again. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's disgusting. As they're as they're talking, um, after he gets tagged. Um, long before they explain it in the word balloons, you see that they insert, you know, he's talking and he goes, <gasps> like yeah, he, yeah. he like, you you hear some sort of breath yeah, sound like effect essentially. Kind of and sound. it's because at, at one point he actually stops breathing and he doesn't need to breathe, but he has to breathe to talk. So yeah. halfway through, a, you know, he gets four sentences in and he has to breathe in because he doesn't do it naturally anymore. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then just the fact that he's at his ex-girlfriend's apartment as they're trying to figure this out and they get in an argument that's kind of what their relationship is in one of those on again off again mm-hmm. relationships and she slaps him across the face and part of his cheek comes off in her fingernails and it's just oh. ah gross yeah the what really strikes me is there's a sequence where he's trying and it's actually, I think it's near the near the end of the book, where he's trying to get rid of it, and he actually almost tries to pass it on to her. He gets angry yeah. enough that he, yeah. he tries to tag her, and I'm that ah uh, that well, creeped in, me out. In fact, he, there's this whole scene where she's sleeping on the couch, and he thinks mm-hmm. about doing, and he goes, "No, I, I really can't do this to her." And this is before he realizes that he has to find the person it has that to be someone it. specific. And what's interesting right. about this curse is not only. Do you have to pass it on to someone who's done you wrong? You get these visions in your head of who this person is. Yeah. It's like before you know, the curse already knows who it has to be. Yeah. Like before you realize who the person who's like most been the worst to you, essentially. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, the curse knew stuff about this person that he didn't. Right. You know, as it, when he starts finding yeah, out more and more about and, this yeah. guy, he's like, oh, crap. This guy didn't just do this to me. He's also been continually doing crap yeah. to me, even right. if I didn't know about it. And yeah, even if and he in didn't this, know about and it. And in the case of that Rodrigo's talking about, it turns out that the reason why he and his ex-girlfriend broke up is because she's sleeping with the guy he's supposed to pass the curse on to. Yep. Right. And so that pretty much, once he finds that out, it's pretty much cemented in his head. And he goes off, look for this guy. But then it gets into this weird part, which is the final part of this three-issue trade is that he sees the guy, and he sees the guy has a family, a wife that the guy obviously doesn't love, and a kid. Mm-hmm. And he just has this, and the issue ends, for me, really weird. I was expecting some kind of resolution. The guy mm-hmm. just falls down in the middle of the street and just sits there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a creepy ending, and it's it's what my grandfather used to complain about, uh, what he used to call the the Twilight Zone ending, where it doesn't tell you what happens it leaves your mind to fill in the blanks of whether he gets up at all whether he can actually go through with it and i i really like that because in my mind i'm sitting there and i'm i'm trying to figure you know 
if I were in his shoes, I honestly think I wouldn't have any problem passing this off to some scuzzball from college who may but have what wronged if it was me. me. By the way, Steve, I need your address. What, what, what <laughs> if it was me? You know, that's the thing. What if it was, and this, I guess, is where you sympathize with this character. It's like, yeah, this guy is, this guy was a real ass, and he does deserve this to have the curse placed on him. And then you're like, yeah, but he's got a daughter, and how would his daughter feel if all of a sudden her dad became a zombie? Now, on the plus side, I guess you could look at it going, okay, I can pass this off to Rodrigo if he's wronged me in some way. Mm-hmm. All Rodrigo has to do is go find the next person, and he's back to normal. That is that is kind of one issue that I had with this is um, you you he also starts investigating the previous people who have had this curse, right. and a lot of them end up killing themselves. Right, just because they can't deal yeah, with Yeah, because of happened. the guilt, to a certain degree, the guilt of having passed this on to somebody else. It, the span of this book is very short, though. Right. Just like a it couple really, of days. It really seems like this guy was cursed for all of maybe three days. Yeah. So yeah. it's and like... his body really decomposes to the end where he's basically, you know, your six-month-in-the-ground zombie yeah. with, you know, maggots crawling out of his face kind of thing. Right. And you've, you, you're in incredible pain for three days, and you can pass this incredible pain to someone else. It's like, but... And then you can't live with yourself... Mm-hmm. About that, like mm-hmm. it's it's it is a horrible thing to do to someone else, but when they pass it on to someone else, they're going to be okay. Right. It's not like they have to pass it on to two people. Right, they just have to pass it on to one more person, mm-hmm. and then they'll be fine. Could could you do it, Rodrigo? Oh yeah, Matthew. I like to think that I couldn't, but honestly, I probably could. I would think I could too. And we had a long after the show discussion last week about college uh, and high school reunions. <laughs> and yeah, there's several people that I think would have gotten that passed on between all three of us. So uh, what's interesting yeah. is there is a, the character that is investigated, the guy that actually creates a website that gives all the clues of what you have to do. If you go and read, there's actually a second trade of tag and it follows this guy, mm-hmm. the guy that did the website and how he's following everyone who was tagged. It's kind of, it's really interesting. I don't think it's as good as, as this, this first one mm-hmm. by uh, Keith Giffen and, and from boom studios. Um, what'd you guys think of the art? I love the art. The, the coloring is done so subtly throughout, but I mean, the art has, it, it, I was trying to to put this into words and I was looking at it from, it, it's it's got very realistic backgrounds, but the characters are kind of stylized in front of it, like the comic strips that I grew up with in, you know, in the seventies or whenever I was a child. I forget now. Again, not good with numbers, but the art is really evocative, and it really gives you a feeling. At the beginning, you feel, and I think his name is Mitch. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's him. him. You feel you feel very claustrophobic in Mitch's apartment, and you can really feel the art makes you, you know kind of feel his desperation and and what he's dealing with in the real creeping horror and as he gets grosser and grosser the art manages to you know show us i won't say realistically because i have no idea what a walking corpse would look like but i hope i never find out it keeps him realistic enough to where you look at it and you still recognize the character yeah and yeah and and importantly it keeps him expressive as well mm -hmm. Well, the whole fact that he still is himself Mm -hmm. going through this. Right. And the coloring gets darker and darker as his life gets more horrible. Yes. And at the end where he's gone to find the guy who wronged him and she's dropped him off in the neighborhood, 
it really sticks out at you. There's a point where he's standing in the bushes and he's getting ready to tag the man. And you see this picture and it's clear and it's right up front of the daughter in mm-hmm. her little in her little pink ballerina dress. Right. And I hadn't realized at that point how little color there was. It's very kind of watercolor. Yeah, every, yeah blues, it's very monochromatic. Yeah. But that pink sticks out like a sore thumb. And again, it's a thing where you can really vividly feel what he's feeling. Just you can see, even with his, you know, horrible mutilated face, that he cannot get away from the fact that this little girl is standing right there, and if he does this, he's taking away her daddy. Yeah. And I think that's and what it, bothers him the most, and that's why he mm-hmm. turns away. Yeah. But again, oh. you know, the way the curse works, there's you know, if he just stays sitting in the middle of the street for forever and doesn't tag this guy, what happens? Does the curse end? Or does he just become then a moving, shuffling skeleton? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's really yeah. weird. And to me, I guess that was the big drawback, was that this was only three issues. It moves so quickly. And in the end, you were just left wondering, okay, is the curse over? Is he mm-hmm. just going to go ahead and let his life end, which is something he doesn't seem he wants to do? Or what? And it may be that way because it wants the reader to ask that question themselves. I was I was left wanting a little bit more... Because they introduced kind of the interweaving of the other guy's story, right? And I was really hoping, and and part of the issue here is that um, when we, we got this uh, PDF, and I don't know if right. this is the width of the, the the trade has been put together. There's another trade behind yeah, that's it, tagged onto it. Um, yeah. Well, so I I I you know saw the page count and I was like, okay, this is going to be pretty long. This is going right. to keep going, and it didn't. It was really short. So maybe mm-hmm. from the point of you know when they were first soliciting the work they didn't have the space but i would have liked to have seen you know mitch's story and bill's story i think is the other guy's name and maybe even the story of the guy that tags both of them Mm because there's several guys in between right the two yeah and that's what that second volume and you guys should check it Mm -hmm. out that second volume because it goes into almost a dozen people Okay. On that. And they all, just like you said, most of the people can't deal with what they just went through and end up dying at some point. Some Mm -hmm. people don't. Some people can move on. Others go crazy and and so on. So Tag from Keith Giffen. What what do you give it? I'll give it three stars. I'll give it three stars. I go three and a half. The art is just that good. Okay, cool. Check it out. It's from Baboom. I got to just put that extra B in there. Boom Studios. Uh, it's it's kind of an interesting read if you're into that horror zombie genre. Mm-hmm. And I think that pretty much wraps it up for the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to tell everyone about the show. Please tell as many people as you can about the show. Uh, just don't sexually harass them. Visit our website, Majorspoilers.com. Hit us up by friending us over at MySpace. We keep getting a lot more people over at MySpace. You can find us at MySpace.com slash Majorspoilers. We really appreciate all the comments that you're leaving on the website, on the iTunes, and all the other places. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas, ideas for future shows, things you want to ask us a question that we should talk about on the show, if you want to sponsor the show like our good friends at the Mid-Ohio Con, just drop us an email at podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Now, next week, we're going to take a break for a change from reviewing trade paperbacks. It gives us a chance to get caught up on a bunch of reading. I just gave Rodrigo a stack of comics before the show. Uh, So next week, we're going to bring you our own rapid-fire roundup of comics because we know that you love comics, and we do too, and we'll see you next time. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Steel.
Some people call it a Kaiser blade. I call it a swing blade. Oh, I like me some French fried potatoes. Oh. Yeah, and then the one guy <laughs> says the water's deep, and the other one says the water's cold. <laughs> See, I always mix that up with the episode with teenagers from outer space. I need me some of them hamburger sandwich and some French fried potatoes. I am a teenager after all. Uh, I said, "Yeah, I'd not do that." <laughs> I like how you talk too. 